0: If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Mark, Mark chapter 12. We'll be in uh, Mark chapter 12, verses 13 uh, through 17. This is the word of the Lord. And they sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians in order to trap him in his talk. And they came and they said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesars. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. And they all marveled at him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you glory and we give you honor, not just with our lips, but with our whole hearts. Lord, you desire that we be not only hearers and readers of your word, but doers and believers as well. And that's my prayer, is that we open and exposit your word, that you would move us, that you would make us more holy, that you would identify our sins and the ways that we have not believed the good news that you would move us to repentance, but that you would also open our eyes that we would behold the wonderful things from your law and that by faith we would trust that following you is greater than following our ideologies or even, at times, our own hearts. Would you have your way with us, we pray, Holy Spirit, and would you forgive us of our sins, especially the one standing here. We love you and bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a phrase that uh, many of you have probably heard, and it goes a little like this, an enemy of my enemy is my friend. And we believe that that phrase uh, actually predates the birth of Jesus by at least 300 to 400 years. That phrase was, was what we've translated, was actually penned by uh, a prime minister and an advisor to two Indian emperors his name was Shanakia, and he is considered to be the pioneer in, in India in the realm of political science and economics. He is, and I've read some of his writings this week, just to kind of get my mind around who we're dealing with. And uh, the brother, I think, is brilliant. Uh, he lays out qualities of a king, but then he moves into military policy. And he creates this scene. He says, suppose that you're a king and a neighboring, more powerful king is coming to attack you. He says you have some options, but the most viable option is to find an enemy of that king and align forces with that enemy, and together the two of you have a better chance of taking that strong enemy out. We see this played out in the NBA, don't we, where teams can't beat a certain team, and so they end up forming an alliance where you get these three players who join another team, and it's all to defeat this other team. We see it as played out in American history. I think it was World War II where we actually partner with Russia uh, when Germany uh, was an Adolf Hitler. I mean, you you see it traced out, and, and I think that's what's happening in this passage this morning. You'll notice it right there. I think what, what's happening is that there are, Jesus has become this formidable opponent to Satan because he's bound him. He's casting out demons. He's freeing people. He's healing people. Jesus is also a formidable opponent against religious leaders. He's a formidable opponent against Herod. Remember, Herod tried to get him killed when he was a kid. All of a sudden, you're starting to see that Jesus is growing in power, and he's becoming a threat. And so what you see are alliances sort of being formed, where these people who would otherwise have no reason to be, be, be in relationship, they're now in relationship and they're focusing on one thing, how do we take Jesus out? Now you see that in the passage, notice how it begins, and they sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. It's important to note that the Pharisees and the Herodians are different. But there's a they behind them that's sending these two different people to Jesus. And notice what it says, to trap him in his talk. And that word, to trap him, it's to set a trap that he will fall into it to his demise. Now, the question is, who is the they? You actually have to go back up a few verses. You'll see, for example, in verse 12, it's the same they who were seeking to arrest Jesus, but they feared the people. You go back to chapter 11, verse 27. It's the they, as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him and said to him. In other words, this is the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders who have now sent the Pharisees and the Herodians, and then next week they're going to send the Sadducees. That's six different groups all forming an alliance to take Jesus out. Now, why? Because he's a threat. He's a threat to all the powers that are in in order. His kingdom is coming, and if Jesus is right, then it means they're wrong. If He is telling the truth, then it means they're frauds. If His kingdom is real, it means that whatever they have been doing behind the scenes is against that kingdom, and so they launch an all out war against Jesus. And here's the thing the war that they launch, in this passage at least, is not a cross, it's not with weapons, it's not with soldiers. It's with a question. One simple question. They want Jesus to answer the question in such a way that if you answer it one way, Jesus, the people will hate you. And they, they will think that you are a coward. And if you answer it another way, Jesus, then Rome will think that you are a threat and they will step on you. They ask this question and they are trying to get him trapped up to his demise. And what you see is Jesus is beautiful and lovely and wise and true. And so I want us to think about this passage under these three headings. The first one is the question behind their question. The question behind their question. The next point will be their private loyalties behind their public masks, like a mask. And the last point will be another way to live behind the way that many so often live. The first thing, the question behind the question. The question is right there. It's in verse 14. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them? Now, we got to understand a little bit about the tax. There's a tax right here and here's what we know about this particular tax, that Judea became a Roman province in AD 6. So think about that. Six years after we think Jesus was born, there's a leadership change, and, and, and Herod the father, his rule has sort of come to an end, and a census was taken from which the Romans then levied a head tax which is a tax that's different from the ones they already were paying on property and articles and clothing and and to the tax collectors. This is a different one. It happened in AD 6. And this tax, it was a tax just because you were living in land that Caesar called his. You had to pay it. And so the Jews already being taxed, they asked, well, should we pay it? Now, I don't know about you, but that, that's a really sobering question for them to ask. Now, why would they ask that? Because when it says, should we, I think we have to pay attention to who is the we. I think it's the Jewish people. Do we, should we pay this tax imposed on us upon by Caesar? Why would they ask the question? It's because this is their land that God promised to them. This is the land that God told them will be yours as an eternal inheritance. And all of a sudden, we're in our land that you promised to us, and now we're paying taxes to someone for the land that you gave to us? That's like making me pay rent on a house that I already own. I mean, that's kind of what they're thinking. And yet, I think there's a question behind the question. It's a question of how God's people are to relate To the laws of the land, period. As a citizen of the kingdom of God, how do we relate to earthly kings and policies and laws that kind of come down to us? What's our posture towards that? You see, I think that's the question behind the question. It isn't about this little coin that you want me to give to Caesar. It's about a bigger issue, and the bigger issue is this. How do we who live in Jackson, Mississippi, in the United States of America, who bow the knee to Jesus, who live under governors, who live under mayors, who live under a president, how do we relate when policy comes down from the top and it comes down to us? What's our posture towards every single thing that comes from that throne? The middle throne, not the higher throne, but the middle throne. What's our posture? And I think this is a question of spiritual formation. It's a question that we all, whether we're new believers or seasoned believers, we need to be regularly asking ourselves, what's my posture? As a citizen and a child of the king, when we're forced to live under other kings, and other rulers. When I follow the law of the Lord, but there are other laws coming down, what, what's my posture? You see, I think that's the question behind the question. And I think it's a question that we all should wrestle with. The second thing I want us to look at in this passage is the private loyalties behind their public masks now I know the word mask is not mentioned in the text but the idea is all over the passage look at it in verse 15 and I think that's a key to understanding the passage the this question is asked but look at what Mark says but Jesus knowing their hypocrisy now right there that should color how we read what we read Jesus sees that that that, that I hear one thing but, but I know something else is going on beneath. And so when you hear this word hypocrisy, where does it come from? It actually comes from Greek theater. And so at the same time that the Indian, the man that I quoted at the beginning who wrote his quote, around that same time, over in here in the Greek uh, territory, theater was a big thing. And it's not like theater in our day. You see, we can go to the movies, And we can get in a leather couch and we can recline and we can have speakers in the behind right behind our ears and we can hear and feel everything. Dolby surround sound. Ding! You get that right. (laughs) And we can watch movies where these directors will record one thing here and one thing here and one thing here, and that's a bad take, so they'll edit that out and re-record it, and then by the time we sit in our comfortable chairs with surround sound, we can see this perfectly put-together movie where all the bad things have been erased, and every single thing is absolutely right, and we can zoom in and see a bead of sweat rolling down an actor's eye as they're crying real tears, right? You get it? This is not what theater was like 400 years before Jesus, there was no surround sound. There was no optimal zoom-in lens. There were no reclining leather couches. When you went to the theater, you went outside. And actors got on the stage. And because those watching the theater were a great distance away, the way they communicated, not just with their words, were with the wearing of masks. In Greek theater, these are some of the masks that they would wear. And you'll notice the over-exaggeration of the faces. That's not just a smile, but it's so pronounced so that if you were in the audience, you would know how the character wants you to feel at that moment. Oftentimes, men played the role of women. And so what they would do is to put on feminine attire, but they would wear a mask of a woman so that the audience would know that the character that I'm playing right now is feminine. And when a character was sad, they would take off the same face with the exaggerated smile and put on the same face with an exaggerated frown. And all of this was to sway the audience and to let the audience know how you should be feeling and what they want you to project. All right, thank you, Greg. And you know the word for a Greek actor? It's where we get our word hypocrite. Same word. Now, Jesus talks about hypocrisy a lot. In Matthew chapter 6, he says, when you give to the needy, don't sound the trumpets like the hypocrites do. In order to be praised by others, they have received their reward. I say to you, when you give to the poor, do not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. And when you pray, don't pray like the hypocrites. They pray in public to be seen and thought well of others, but that's not you. When you pray, you go into your room, into your prayer closet, you get on your knees, and you close the door because your Father in heaven, he sees you. Why does Jesus say this over and over again? Do not be like the hypocrites. They love to point out the sins of other people, but they won't take out the log in their own eyes. Do not be like them. In other words, Jesus is saying it's possible to have the appearance of being generous, but all you really care about is making people on social media like the fact that you're generous. It's easy to think that you're holy, but all you care about is what other people think about you when we're not actually being holy. You get the message? Matthew, Jesus in Matthew uses hypocrisy more than any other time in the Gospels. And here is what I think it means for this passage. It means it's possible to ask this question about government and about taxes. But for it all to be a mask. And behind the mask, there are other loyalties. And so if you were a witness to what was happening, you would be... You would think that they're asking a good question with right motives but the text actually says he knew their hypocrisy and here's the irony did you notice how they flatter jesus look at verse 14 they came to him and said teacher we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances but truly teach the way of god now look at your bible my bible right by appearances it has a number three. And if you go to the bottom, you'll see, how do we translate number three? Why is the number three by appearances? And you see right there in the bottom, it says, in the Greek, you do not look at people's faces. You see, what? not that ironic that they're telling Jesus, you don't look at people's faces, and Jesus is like, you absolutely right, I don't look at faces. I see the mask that you're wearing and I know what's going on beneath the mask that you're projecting, which makes us have to ask the question, what then are their private allegiances? Hypocrisy always has something beneath. When they ask the question, what are they, what's behind the mask? I think for the Pharisees, And they're different from the Herodians that they're hiding something. We know for a fact from a first century historian whose name is Josephus. You can't trust everything he writes, but a lot of what he does write is is spot on. But he writes about a group of Jews in AD 6 who revolted against the head tax. The head tax that they introduced in AD 6 That didn't fly well with everybody. There was a revolt, and the revolt was led by a man named Judas the Galilean. And do you want to know who his counterpart was? The other person, his right hand man. You want to know who it was? It was a man by the name of Zadok the Pharisee. So think about it. These two men, a zealot and a rebel, and a Pharisee, Those were the two, when the the tax came down the pipe, they said, no, we will not pay the tax. It is treason. We do not need to be paying anything else to Caesar. He is not our Lord. He is not our God, and we ain't going. That was them. R.C. Sproul writes that many of the Pharisees believed that the Jews were under a moral obligation not to pay taxes to Caesar. And if Jesus were a really godly man, he would not advocate paying taxes to an ungodly conquering government. In other words, for the Pharisees, taxation from big government is an abomination. We don't do that. The irony here is that they were greedy. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he actually quotes Moses. In Moses' law, Moses told you how to care for your aging parents. And you Pharisees have come up with this whole other doctrine called korban. If you can take what should go to your parents for their care, and you can say it's devoted for God... You have now just created a system by which you free yourself from carrying out this God given responsibility. And at the heart of it, it's not about the law, it's about your greed. And these same people are anti the tax. Their God is greed. And so they're asking this question. They're asking it as if we're concerned about the law and how we relate to it, but deep down inside, they're greedy. And what's under the mask of the Herodians? We mentioned them already in Mark chapter 3. I mean, it's this party that's named after Herod. I mean, that would be equivalent to the Bushians, right? Or the Obamians or, you know, the Trumpians. I mean, think about it. There's a whole party named after a political leader, and that's who these Jews are aligning themselves with, and they actually think that the kingdom of God is going to come in by a mortal man. Just because Daddy Herod rebuilt Jerusalem and threw Yalafu bones and rebuilt the temple, do you really think he's Messiah? Do you really think He's going to bring in the kingdom? Don't you see that he's mortal? He's sinful. His son took his brother's wife. And this is who you are aligning with? You have an overinflated view of government. That's what Jesus is saying. There's a study called for the life of the world. John Perkins is a contributor Makoto Fujimura, Dr. Anthony Bradley, Dr. Amy Sherman, who's uh, with the International Justice Missions and Human Trafficking, Greg Thompson, Stephen Grable, Abraham Kuyper, Herman Bavink, In other words, these are people in our circles. And they have this study, and they basically say that some answer the question of how do we relate to government and laws and society around us he says christians have erred in three ways in the past one is domination one is fortification and one is accommodation that that has been if we look at the history of the church we have erred in those ways so what in the world is domination it's when well-intending believers tend to dominate and overthrow and pick up arms and tear down government that's what Judas the Galilean was doing he was trying to dominate and put himself over right it doesn't work when you read the story of some of the people who lived after him listen to what one guy writes all sorts of misfortunes sprang up from these men. Our nation was infected with this radical doctrine. One violent war crime came upon us after the other. We lost friends. Our leading men were murdered. Families had their materials plundered. Eventually, he was killed and his followers dispersed, and it all came to nothing. That's like somebody who lived right after Judas the Galilean, living, telling you, I'm telling you, domination doesn't work. What's fortification? That's when we build our own bunkers. We hunker down and and give government nothing. Find out anything, any way we can do to not give and contribute and be involved. That doesn't work. And and what's accommodation? It's like the Herodians. It's like lay down, throw off all your moral entanglements, throw off all your your distinctiveness that makes you a follower of Jesus and just roll over and do whatever, whatever government says, whatever law says, you do that. And isn't this where we can easily land? Peter picks up a sword when Jesus is about to be betrayed, and he cuts off the ear of a servant. And what does Jesus say? He says, Peter, you live by it, you'll die by it. My kingdom is coming, and it's not coming by you usurping and using force and weapons, it's a different kingdom. Haven't we seen that fortification doesn't work when we just bunker down and get into our own huddles and we hate government, we hate taxes, we hate everything, we speak out against it loud and and it doesn't work. And haven't we seen in the history of even our country, right, where accommodation doesn't work, that, that government says these things are legal and therefore you can do it. Haven't we seen when government says you can own people? And Christians read that, okay, government says we can own people. It's okay for me to own people. It's not okay to own people. Government says it's okay to rape slaves. So now I can rape slaves and and send away families. Government is giving me my cue. Therefore, I can do it. Or government says we can murder children. Because government says it's right. Never mind that they have a right to life, and government says you can get a divorce with no fault, no contest, just throw, just do it. Okay, well now we can divorce if we just get tired, if it gets hard. Or government says, marry who you want to marry, and we hear that. And we say, okay, government says it's okay, then it's okay. And don't we see it doesn't work? You can look back at our history, it doesn't work when God's people take their cue from government. It doesn't work when we let the the laws that come from government and above us then become our moral compass. It doesn't work. There's carnage and hurt and and, and sin all wrapped up in that. And here's the question. Where do you lean? Where do you lean? Are you an accommodationist? Where you take your cues from whatever comes down. This is what I have a right to. Do you fortify? I hate all government. I'm ready to overthrow it. Where do you land? Jesus offers a different way. And that's the last point. There's another way to live behind the way many live. Back to the question, how do we relate to government and laws in the in-between time of Jesus' first and final coming. And before we look at what Jesus says, can we just look at verse 17? Whatever Jesus says, it says, and they marveled at him. When do you marvel at something? Is it not when it is utterly beautiful and utterly different? We got to go to Yosemite National Park this summer, and I was moved to wonder, to see land and mountains and streams and fields of flower and changing elevations. I don't get to see that in flat Jackson, Mississippi, right? (laughs) I mean, I think I can cook a little bit. but. I get moved to wonder in my annual once-a-year trip down to Big John's when I get me a smoked sandwich, right? And it's like the red rose sausage that's been sitting in grease and the mustard on the bun and the bun is toasted. I know some of y'all, I see your faces. You're like, ugh. Hey, it's good. You need cholesterol medicine. But you know what? It moves me to wonder. I can't cook like that in my house. You know when we're moved to wonder? When something we see, taste, experience is different from what we're accustomed to hearing. When whatever Jesus says, it moves them to wonder. They marvel why? Because what he's saying is not like the Herodians and is not like the Pharisees. Whatever he says is otherworldly and different. It's another way to live. But what does he say? Look at verse 15. He says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. A denarius was the standard pay for one days of labor. And so they brought Jesus a coin. Now, it's, it's worth mentioning that Jesus doesn't even have a coin in his pocket. <laughs> right? He's like, look. I don't even have a coin in my pocket, but y'all got a bunch of the coins in y'all pockets. (laughs) So since y'all greedy and love money, you Pharisees, and since you Herodians are anxious to pay the tax, why don't you take one of those coins you got in your pocket and you let me see it? Jesus is not the one who has a firm grip on money and materials, but notice what Jesus says, whose likeness and inscription is on it. And they said to him, Caesar's. And what's behind that? Roads have been built by Caesar. Buildings have been built by Caesar. Trade has been solidified by Caesar. Soldiers are being paid by Caesar. And that coin comes straight from minting wherever Caesar mints his coins. And therefore, give him what he owes. Give it back to him. In other words, Jesus isn't just saying pay taxes. He's actually saying something deeper. That our posture towards government and towards laws, it's not as rebels. It's as servants, ready to obey and ready to pray for and ready to give honor. That's why Paul says in Romans 13, let every person be subject to governing authorities. There is no authority except from God, and those who exist, exist, have been instituted by God. Rulers are not a terror to those with good conduct, but those with bad. Would you have no fear of the one that is in authority? Do what is good. And then in verse 6, he says, pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed, taxes to whom taxes are owed, and revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. And I know it's income tax time. (laughs) But you know that we can approach that as an act of worship. We can. That's what he's saying but he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 17, and give to God the things that are God's. What things that are God's? I think there's a word play going on here. This coin had a likeness of Caesar on it and the inscription of Caesar on it, and Jesus says because this is Caesar's and his likeness and inscription is on it, he is Lord over this fear, so you give it back. But here's the question that we need to ask. Whose likeness and inscription is God's? Where do we see God's likeness and inscription? You know what the Bible says? <laughs> it's on you. It's on humans in general by being made in His image but it's on believers made in the image of God, restored after the image of God. God looks at you, Christian, and he says, you are mine. Amen. You're made in my likeness. My imprint is over you. And therefore, for you living in the middle kingdom, you give to me what is mine. And that is your worship. That is your." heart that is your joy that is your satisfaction in me that is your repentance that is your time your talent your treasure you give these things back to me because I am a beautiful owner and creator of all things that's what Jesus is saying to them we give to God what is God's and when we see that the middle kingdom. Is conflicting with our higher kingdom we don't give that higher allegiance to the middle kingdom did you notice in our call to worship the posture for the exiles going into babylon go marry have kids seek the good of the city and pray for the city God doesn't tell them to go in there and raise hell. He says, go in there and be good citizens and pray and submit. But, did you read what happened in Daniel? Nebuchadnezzar overstepped. And did you know who he employed? I mean, look, look at your bulletin. Look right there. It actually says, There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. In other words, these aren't just regular Jews. These are Jews that Nebuchadnezzar had appointed to actually work for him. And he crossed the line. He built this image and wanted everyone to bow down to the image. And what did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say? We are not going to even answer you in this. If this be so, the God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And if not, he will deliver us out of your hand. But if not, may it be known, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, which one is it? Do we just accommodate to laws? no it's a third way we're not like the pharisees and we're not like the herodians we're something different and we don't look like them when we have this type of theology you know who we look like we look like jesus jesus did not summon legions of angels to overthrow government. Jesus from the cross prayed for his enemies. Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Jesus told Peter to put the sword up. Jesus was a law-abiding citizen. Up until a point when those kingdoms collided, He was not afraid to say, you have no power other than the power that I've given to you. And in one beautiful moment, Jesus gave to God what was God's. And that was his own life on a cross, which was a Roman form of execution. That our servant, our Savior, honored both the law of the land to a point, and he offered his life unto God on a cross to show us how to live and to pay that debt that we all have for our misallegiances. There's a third way to live, Christian, where we're not like the Pharisees, and we're not like the Herodians, and we're not like the Zealots. It's the way of Jesus. I will give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and I will give everything I am to God. And when it hurts, it'll hurt. And my God is faithful. I want to read a letter from a Chinese pastor who's been sentenced to nine years in prison. And in this letter, he writes after he got the sentence, He says, on the basis of the teaching of the Bible and the mission of the gospel, I do respect the authorities that God has established in China. God himself raises kings and God himself deposes kings. This is why I am submitting to the historical and institutional arrangements of God in China. For this reason, I accept and respect the fact that this regime has been allowed to rule by God temporarily. For this reason, I am joyfully submitting myself to their enforcement of law as though I am submitting to the discipline and training of the Lord. And at the same time, I believe that this communist regimes persecution against the church is greatly wicked and unlawful. And as a pastor of the church, I must denounce it. The calling that I have received requires me to use nonviolent methods to disobey those human laws that disobey Bible and God my Savior requires me to joyfully bear all costs for disobeying. My firm belief in the gospel, my teaching and my rebuking of all evil proceeds from Christ's command in the gospel and from the unfathomable love and that glorious King. Every man's life is extremely short and God fervently commands the church to lead the call to all to repentance. Christ is eager to receive all who, who, who are willing to uh, turn to him in faith and turn from their sins. This is the quote, that the part that I like the most. This is the goal of the efforts of the church in China, to testify to the world about our Christ, to testify to the middle kingdom about the kingdom of heaven, to testify to earthly momentary lives about the heavenly eternal one. That's my prayer. That we can testify in the middle kingdom of the greater kingdom. Amen? Let's pray. Father, would you write your word upon our heart? Would you allow us, Lord, to, by your Spirit, to trust that you will work this out in intricate ways in our lives, that you will apply it by your Spirit? Father, if I'm error, I pray that you would blot that out and allow us to remember it no more. We love you. We bless you. In Christ's name, amen.